warnings so far. You've told us to recognize those who are less seen in the body, Lord. And we thank you for Judy and her behind-the-scenes ministry for all these years, a husband that has supported her in her service here, Lord. And we are encouraged by that. And Lord, it helps us understand there are so many people who serve in ministries here at Riverbend, Lord. And what a, what a blessing it is to be involved in the work of God. Lord, we thank you that we can sing praises to you, be led by choirs and worship leaders and music teams that exalt your son through music. And we can sing with them and express our love for our Savior. What a joy that is. And Lord, now... We have the great pleasure, the honor, to open your word and to learn from it. You've spoken to us through your word. It is sufficient. It is clear. It is articulate. Lord, we know what you want us to know through your word. And we're privileged. Spirit of God within us helps us understand that and interpret it and live by it, Lord. And so we praise you for that. Father, there are those who couldn't be here today. They have gone through procedures or surgeries or, or doing treatment of some kind, Lord. We pray for them and we ask, Lord, that you would heal them, Lord. But we also ask that you would cause them to grow in their love for you during this time of, of testing and trouble that they go through, Lord. And Father, draw them close to you and bring them back to us soon. We do thank you for our missionaries around the world and we thank you for those that we are sending money to in Ukraine, Lord, that are serving the church of Jesus Christ there faithfully. And we pray, Lord, that these funds will be a great encouragement and will further the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in that devastated country, Lord. But Lord, be with our missionaries all around the world. Lord, thank you for our partnership with them, Lord. Thank you for the involvement that we have. Lord, bless that effort. Now, Lord, give us strength. Encourage us as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to step into the shoes of a young believer in Corinth in the first century. Maybe you were raised in the temple of Delphi, a temple that was full of all kinds of pagan views and godless behavior. Your father probably had a effeminate young man that he regularly visited that attended to his so-called needs. Your mother probably was a temple prostitute. And all of your family had scars from cutting themselves for their gods. They engaged regularly in drunkenness and hallucinants that helped them stimulate themselves in this pagan rituals. Most family gatherings were centered around a meal of meat that was offered to these dead gods. You had multiple generations gathering. The family was steeped in this pagan religion. But Paul's gospel started to be preached in your town. You heard this message that was rapidly spreading. You were warned, you were warned to stay away from it. Those Christians, though, were different. Many were joyful. Many found great joy in worshiping completely different. And they were monotheistic. They worshiped one God. Eventually, you heard this gospel message, and 
something miraculously took place and as truth took hold of your heart and mind. Sin had become real now. You saw the offense it was to the one and true living God. But there was a Christ, there was a Jesus who died in your place. And now you are freed from those wages of death. The desire for the pagan godless worship with your family now began to leave. In fact, it sickened you as you compared it to the message of the cross. As you began to gather with the way a group of Christ followers that are assembling in Corinth, you're amazed at their knowledge and their understanding of this God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each week you come to glean some truth from them. But they don't seem to be encouraging. They, they have a little desire to disciple you. They just want you to do what they do and to follow them. There seems to be a lot of talk. And all of a sudden it happens. You hear a conversation about how you can find cheap meat down in the market that's been offered to the idols of Delphi. You can't imagine that anyone would have anything to do with such a godless pagan religion. And then on top of that, that you hear that some of the Christians from the church are now attending pagan festivals at your family's temple. And you begin to question your faith in your church. These are the concerns the Apostle Paul has as he goes into these next three chapters. Knowledge had only brought a return of arrogance and pride with these leaders in the Corinth church. The love of God was ignored. And this young believer was being not edified, but discouraged. So the Apostle Paul now starts in to tackle the abuse of Christian liberty. See, his goal is the same from church to church. We study him from Ephesus to Philippi to Corinth. He desires that each person will love the Lord with all their heart, their strength, their might, and their mind. And he desires that they would love their neighbor as themselves. See, Paul desires for each Christian was that they would grow in wisdom and understanding of God. That it would cause them to walk in a manner that was worthy of their calling. And to please him in every respect, bearing fruit for the glory of God. That was Paul's goal. Paul taught a true lordship salvation, didn't he? To live was Christ, to die was gain. And yet, in Corinth, knowledge was not leading to worship. It was leading to confusion. In chapter 8, we will find the first section of the subject of Christian liberties. The freedoms that we have as Christians, but not a freedom to abuse them, to cause stumbling blocks. I don't know how far I'll get in this passage today because we've had several things going on in here and I'll fight my enemy called the clock. But we'll do our best to see how Paul starts to address which is very sensitive subject. If you've been in leadership at Christian ministries at all, this is a subject that often comes up. Often Christians will defend their liberties far stronger than they will defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's a danger. And it's often a stumbling block to the unbeliever. Let me look at the first point at least this morning. Number one, empty idolatry that pales in comparison to our almighty God and Father. Well, after setting the tone that prideful knowledge is in great contrast to a, remember this, to a love that edifies, Paul seeks to use this truth to expose this false thinking that has crept into these Corinth members. But as he starts into this first section, remember there's going to be several sections throughout these chapters, he states areas that he's in agreement with the church, things he's taught them before, things that they know. And he does this in order to grab their attention and to help them listen to what he's going to have to rebuke them about. Notice verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Well, here Paul resumes the subject on which he started in verse 1, as you remember, concerning the thing sacrificed to idol. He returns now to this. And notice he says, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. And most likely Paul's quoting uh, probably from the letter that they sent to him. And notice the term, we know again. See, See, the Corinth church was taught theology. Paul would not have gone into Corinth and not taught them who God was. He he opened his Bible, which would have been the Old Testament scrolls, and he taught of the greatness of God from the text. The problem was their pride quickly robbed them of applying doctrine. Pride will do that to you. It'll rob you from applying and living out your theology. You may have great theology. We see this in Reformed circles. People have great theology, but yet have such a hard time practicing it. In fact, often it gets abused. But Paul seems to be repeating these spiritual truths that he taught this church. Uh, Several scriptures would come to mind as you think about this whole aspect of idols and meat and so forth. Doubtlessly, Paul took them to Psalms 115 and Psalms 135, where there was a similar description given of idols. They'd heard this. The the psalmist wrote this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, and they cannot feel. They have feet, and they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. These were passages that Paul doubtlessly taught them, and they're they're restating these truths back to Paul. Another passage, for the sake of time, I would love to go to and spend time with you, but write this down, Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 20, somewhere in there, The prophet, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, gives a great description of just the dead thinking that people who worship idols have. There you remember this. They talk about taking this piece of wood and they carve it into some image that they fall down before and worship it. But the wood that they didn't use, they make a fire out of it and eat their food. (laughs) God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? 
even as he casts judgment, doesn't he? And there the prophet Isaiah pleads with the nation to turn away from the pagan, godless trend that they are on as judgment is certainly coming. These would have been passages that Paul would have rehearsed with the Corinth church. The stone, the wood, the precious metals, yeah, they were real, but they were nothing, Paul says. Often, these images were carved out of something that doesn't even exist, something made up in the demonic mind of the carver, or, or in other cases, they carved something that God had created. And they worship the creation and not the creator. See, it only reflects the fallen, sinful desires of the idol designer and the demonic stimulant behind it. I had not been around the world too much till uh, many years ago, and I ended up speaking at a conference in India. There I was taken throughout that couple of weeks. I was there to the Kali Temple. I'll never forget it. It's still etched in my mind. It's something I will die within my mind. First, we were barely allowed in, but once we got clearance, we had to remove our shoes, and we walked through pools of blood, for they had been sacrificing animals that morning. Widows whose husbands had died no longer exist in that pagan religion, laid on the floor, rolling around in the blood with flies all over them. As we stepped over them and made our way to the first room of a first god that was there, small g, I found people wailing, cutting themselves, begging in a language that I did not know for their god to help them. I moved to another room and found a god of fertility, some tree where they would tie rocks on to pray that they could get pregnant. And then there would be a basket. If they did get pregnant, they would take that rock down and put it in the basket. The basket had very few and thousands and thousands of rocks tied to this tree. I came to the last part of the temple, and I'll never forget the scene. Bodies as high as my shoulder stacked up, trying to reach through the bars to touch this dead God formed of metal. They were trying to gain healing. It was for them or a family member who was dying. I don't think I'd ever felt a demonic presence as much as that day. I've been to India and Philippines and different places around the world. I've watched people leave food for gods at night and then see the homeless or uh, poor come in and eat that food at night. I've seen pictures just recently that Ton sent from Spain of a, a place that sells Catholic idolatry, just shelves after shelves after shelves of little idols of so-called saints. And when we think about this, you see that they have great passion and great emotion, but there is nobody there, Paul is saying. It's empty, is the idea of the Greek words. They represent nobody. But Paul brings them back to this conclusion, which they would have agreed with. There is no God but one. Notice that. This phrase as well could have been in their letter. He, they might be repeating that back. Jews recited a creed that 
a creed type of verse that they took out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. They recited it twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And so the Corinthians also confessed their belief that God was one. And therefore, they too said with Paul, no idols really exist. They were monotheistic, not polytheistic, which would be the person that I gave a figurative language to in Corinth. They would have been polytheistic. But no, no, the Corinth Christian would have been monotheistic. But this is where pride enters in. And even though they knew that the idols were inanimate objects made out of wood and stone and metal, this led them to believe that they were free to partake in the meat that was offered to these idols. And there was just absolutely no concern for a weaker believer or, or how they would represent even Jesus Christ in that mode. So they had no problem or no foresight to see that they caused others to stumble. Look at verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So let's stop right there. Paul's continuing to drive his point home here. But he says it in a very interesting way. Why is Paul saying that these so-called, key word, gods in heaven or earth are many gods and many lords? Well, just the fact that he inserts so-called there, you see that in your text. Paul is reflecting and questioning and showing the reality of these gods that they're, that they're really not there. But Paul's teaching like the psalmist. He's, he's teaching like the prophets, right? That these gods exist only in wood and stone and metal. They only exist in name only and they're devoid of authenticity. They're not real. They have no ability to lay claim to deity because they are just inanimate objects. And think about this. Even that inanimate object is subject to God, <laughs> the supreme ruler, the creator of all things. Oh, if those pieces of wood or stone or metal could speak, oh, what they would say. I thought about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness Satan was there trying to get him to submit to him. He often uses truth in a twisted way, doesn't he? Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4, he tells Jesus, he's called the tempter here, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Isn't that interesting? You know, the fact is, Jesus could have made those stones become bread. But he wasn't going to obey him. This is how God has the power, our Lord has the power, and Satan knew that everything was subject to God. Another phrase that caught my attention as I thought through this this week is Luke 19.40. Jesus is coming in what we call Palm Sunday. And there the masses are laying down palm branches and clothing, and they're singing uh, of anthems that point to his messiahship. This irks the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they tell Jesus, you stop them. And Jesus' reply says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. See, all of God's creation knows who Jesus is. 
And his creation knows the maker and they groan for his return, Romans 8.22. And think about this, even though Satan is behind this worship of these stone gods and wood gods and metal gods. And Jesus calls him the prince of the world and Paul refers to him as a prince of the air. Even though he has those titles, he is not God. He'll never be divine. He is a created being. And one day he will be judged forever, cast into the lake of fire, and there he will perish for eternity. Now remember, the pagans of this day worship numerous gods and lords. Talk about polytheistic here, right? So this is why Paul is using these terms, many gods, many lords. And they honored these gods that they believed dwelled in, some dwelled in the heavens, some dwelled on the earth, some dwelled in the sea, and so forth. That's his why they had so many of them. So the expression many lords or many gods was a a belief of ranking of angels or ranking of these deities of some sort. There was hierarchy even within their so-called gods. Paul got in a lot of trouble (laughs) preaching the sufficiency of Christ. Because as he preached the sufficiency of Christ, the obvious conclusion was that all other gods are dead. And this angered people. Throughout his ministry, he often got himself into great trouble preaching the sufficiency of Christ because they knew that he knew their gods were dead. And so either those who worshipped the idols or those who made them got mad. Well, this came to a head in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. Paul had been into town preaching the gospel. And finally, some leading men got up and had enough of this. They cry out in verse 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, but Paul's doing a great job, right? Not only just here, but all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away considerable numbers of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And you go back and you study those things. And you begin to realize he actually doesn't always use that language. Most of the time, he talks about the sufficiency of Christ. And they hate him for it. And they try to kill him in this scene. And he is rescued by a Roman cohort. And this begins his trail to Rome. Look at verse 6 with me. Yet for us, there is but one God. I love that statement. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Well, this statement is so well written. Um, Some theologians think he's reading a creed of the early church. Well, he may have, but I, I think it's just the Spirit of God inspiring Paul to make this statement and show how devoted he is to the Godhead and show the equality of the Godhead. Notice in verse 6, he starts with this phrase, yet for us there is but one God. Look at him contrast the difference between those so-called gods of the pagan world with this one true God who rules over all. Look at the clear statement of theology there. 
And here's what's really key, is the pagan religions believed different gods ruled over different areas, right? Or different places. But Paul is saying here, there's one true living God. He's not confined to one location, but he rules over everything in every place at every moment. What a clear distinction, isn't it? I love the phrase, Father. Notice Paul gives this true and living God the title, the Father. When Paul refers to God, he repeatedly, throughout his writings, always names him as the Father. Because God and the Father are one. Jesus, right, taught his disciples to pray, addressing God as Father, our Father, which are in heaven. The term teaches this family concept that you and I have been brought into, isn't it? He's our father. He watches over his children. He has made us his joint heirs to himself. He's brought us into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we sit at the family table with him. The term father is endearing, isn't it? It's intimate. And he desires his children to know him as father. It's so foreign to the pagan world to have that. When you study Greek mythology, you will have some god who gave birth to some other god, and, and they think somebody on earth might be that son, and then he fails, and he's not. But none of them are father of all, right? Because only God can do that. And so there is only one true God, Paul says. And he has come to us in the person of the Son of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the only begotten. He's fully God. He's fully God in deity form, Colossians says. And so we're brought to the Father only through the divine Son. So Paul's point here is he is driving home is that everything comes from the Father. All believers exist for the Father. But just as true, notice in the verse, everything is by the Son. And everyone who comes to the Father comes to the Son. And Paul's teaching a powerful but clear affirmation of the equality of the Father and the Son. And so that the Son should never, ever be looked at as a lesser God. He shows that they share deity, that they can never be separated. See, this is done to glorify the Godhead and destroy any validity to the existence of so-called gods. Look at verse 7 with me. However, not all men have this knowledge. Isn't that interesting? You know what he's saying? Some of the Corinthians hadn't been to Theology Proper 101 at Christ Bible College. You should probably take that class. It's really good. Do I get to teach that? Some haven't had this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Well, I believe the Corinthians knew that idols were not real. That was not the problem. And that these so-called gods and lords were earthly uh, inventions, uh, demonically motivated. I think we can show that throughout the scriptures. 
I think they also understood the monotheistic instruction of the scriptures that God was the only real God who was revealed in the scriptures and revealed through Jesus Christ alone. So the Corinthians believed those doctrines, but the problem is they failed to apply those truths in their daily living. In other words, it is possible to have a right understanding, but a wrong relationship. You fail to submit to the truth that you know here, and it never gets here. This is why we don't stop sinning sometimes. Because cerebrally, we know God hates sin, and His Son paid the price for our sin. But we fail to think about that in our hearts and apply that. And so because of that, we make poor choices. We do things that hurt others. And here in verse 7, Paul is reminding them that though they have understood the truth, they were failing when it came to exercising Christian liberty for the glory of Christ. Their liberties were more important to them than the glory of Christ. This is where Paul's going for the next three chapters. Notice he says, however, not all men have this knowledge. Paul is revealing that not every believer in Corinth had a full knowledge of the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation. But notice what I love about this is Pastor Paul here, he, he's, he's now put on his pastor hat and he has in mind some of those who have recently come out of this pagan lifestyle in Corinth where their dads were involved in homosexuality, their moms were involved in prostitution. They lived a pagan world. They've come to faith, but they're weak still. They don't understand this because this group in Corinth hasn't been teaching the doctrine of God. They've been teaching the doctrine about themselves. And now you have some weak people there. And this dear pastor, Pastor Paul, he's a good shepherd. And he's reminding us that he cares and feels responsible for the entire flock. And that's what a good leader does. Cares for the follower, the leader, the strong, the weak. He seeks to minister to all of them. So Paul says this, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. It's a struggle to quite get your mind around what he's saying here, but what he's doing is he says, the weak are struggling. They're struggling with that a Christian would engage in something that was so pagan, and they seem not to be bothered by it. And here is one who had, who had been in the grips of that paganism that God had, had, had called out and saved out of. And they were overwhelmed with it. He, he uses the word idleness singular. If you'll notice that in the text, you can see that in English. If he would have used it in the plural, it would have shown that the believers were still serving these pagan gods. But he chooses by the inspiration of the Spirit, to use it in the singular. And this, this means that they, they understood there was an environment from which believers come out of, right? And so, so this young believer says, they, they, until now, that, that's what they, all they did was they, all, that's all they know, but now they don't. Now they know the difference of it. It's really a rebuke against those who think they have knowledge. And even this new believer, if he or she did not understand completely that there was one and true living God. I've, I've met Christians that when they first come to faith, struggle to get their mind around the Trinitarian Godhead, right? And, 
and understand that Jesus is fully God and he shares that same glory and essence. But even in that, the ones that did know should have not caused them to stumble. See, these new converts were wanting nothing to do with the contamination and the evil influences of what they've been brought out of. The pagan gods were not real. They were just wicked practices. Their consciences now were were clinging to Christ. Think about as they saw possibly somebody go back to join a festival, one who was saying they were a Christian. Think about all that would come back in. They, they saw the sex and drugs and prostitution and homosexuality and, and all this pagan stuff. It, it was very difficult for them, and they were stumbling. And the problem came when they followed these more knowledgeable believers who boasted in their Christian liberties. And then the Bible says their consciences being weak is defiled. These men and women were struggling. They began to question and doubt what was going on. And even though the act was not in and of itself sinful, so someone to eat meat that was offered to an idol that they bought in the marketplace, it became wrong when it caused others to sin against their own conscience. And that's what Paul is after. Notice he uses the word defiled there. Defiled conscience is one that ignores or violates what they know is clearly wrong. These young believers had a conscience that were struggling with confusion and resentment and and possibly feelings of guilt. And a person who sins against their conscience willingly does what they know is to be wrong, and in their mind they've now committed sin. See, to them, they looked at that and said, there's just no way we can go back. But yet there were Christians who willingly went into pagan worlds and enjoyed themselves without teaching and training and discipling these young believers. Well, until that person fully understands, when we think about sinning against our conscience, tell Tell that person fully understands that the act is not sinful in God's eyes because there may be something that we do that is not inherently sinful, but in the context it could lead someone to sin, we must be careful. This wasn't only a problem in Corinth. Paul wrote to Rome, Rome church. He said this in Romans 14, 23, but he who doubts is condemned when he eats because he's eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. And so that's what we need to be careful for as we bring up young Christians, as we disciple them, that we do not cause them to stumble, and that's what's happening in Corinth. So to these believers in Corinth, they were doubtlessly struggling. So Paul's main point here is that anyone who causes a weaker Christian to sin against their conscience, against their faith, faith is leading that person into sin. And that brings us back to the beginning of chapter 8. See, this is why we set this up last week. There, he, he makes the reader understand that knowledge without love, knowledge, though it is a beautiful thing that we can grow in knowledge and understand, but if it is without love, it becomes deadly. 
It tears down. That word, I went back and looked at that, um, the opposite thought of love edifying. The opposite is that it tears down. Here's young believers coming out of some of the worst things that us American Christians, you know, 2,000 years later can think of. These people were being torn down through their knowledge and not lifted up through their love. And so knowledge may assure us that something is perfectly acceptable to God. You can fill in the blank. You want to talk about alcohol? You want to talk about whatever? I mean, there's all kinds of things that Christians love to put their stake in the ground over Christian liberty. And many of these things are perfectly acceptable, but love will tell us something different. See, love tells us that if it causes a fellow Christian to sin against their conscience, we should never partake in a Christian liberty that would do that. Look at the end of the chapter, and we'll get to this next week. He says this, therefore, this is his conclusion. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. This is not a vegan verse. You're talking to a cattle guy. <laughs> Look at this. So I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and he loved who Christ loved. Did you hear that? Paul loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and he loved who Christ loved. And he would go on a permanent fast against certain things if that, if that was to cause that believer to fall in any way. His love for Christ was so astounding when it came to that. And so as we close this out and we move to our communion time, let me ask you a couple of questions. Is there any areas in our life that are stumbling blocks to others? Are you with me? I had to think about this this week. It's not fun to think about sometimes. And you go, well, I haven't been to any temples of pagan gods lately. Well, maybe you have. <laughs> what does the world love? Can you think of just think of commercials that are constantly put on. Think of what is constantly being pushed to the world. Think about that. That's what they love because they're always showing it to you. Do you love it the same way? And think about this. Is that love that we have for the things that the, love, the world loves, is it first stent, uh, uh, um, causing us not to grow? Stunting is the word I want. Stunning our own growth. Or is it offending a brother and sister in the Lord? So can you think of anything in your life? That doesn't mean think of somebody else's, what they're doing. This is you. So somebody's struggling to know who Christ is because of things we choose regularly to do. Has anyone been caused to sin against their conscience because of our actions? Sometimes we don't know this. Sometimes it takes a dear brother or sister to come and approach you about those things. But should we examine these from time to time? Should we look at these and say, am I causing someone in my life to stumble in some way? 
You want to get a little more personal? Let's go to a husband and wife relationship. Oh, ow. She's my sister in the Lord. Hmm. So now the rubbish is meeting the road, isn't it? We're not down in the pagan temple. We're actually in our house. <laughs> Do you cause people to stumble because you love your Christian liberty, your freedom that you think you have in some area where you've hurt the faith of others? And then last question before we go to communion, because I want to, this to kind of bleed right into communion as we find our strength in the finished work of Jesus. Listen to this question. Are we willing to give up anything in order to see others grow? Maybe God's going to ask you through this series over the next few weeks as we work through 8 and 9 and 10 to give up something for the sake of his glory. Not something sinful. If it's sinful, duh. <laughs> I mean, that's easy, right? But here's something that might be inherently good or something that's okay, God does not condemn in any way, but yet it is a stumbling block to people you love. Maybe it's the way you talk, gossip. I mean, think of it. Myriad of things. You have to have, let God search you. Ask God to search you and see if there's any wicked thing in us and ask God for the strength to remove it. Father, we are just touching on this subject. Lord, this is not about legalism. You are not a God who propagates legalism. In fact, your son came on this earth and preached for three years against legalism. This is truth about living a life joyfully for our God who died for us. This is truth about living for Jesus in a pleasing way, things that please him uh, more than maybe our own pleasure. This is about standing in front of you someday and desiring good desires to have a fruitful life at the end of this life. So Lord, there are many stages of Christians in this room. By your grace, there's new believers all the way to older believers. And every one of us have some areas in our life that need to be challenged. Some kind of pride that we hold on to. Lord, I ask this morning that through this series you would continue to refine us as your children, our Father. That we would listen to the Father who seeks the best for his children. And Father, we pray this, that the gospel, as we are just going to engage in here in a moment, remembering your son's finished work, that it would be the gospel that would motivate change in our life, that would motivate conviction and, and a, a, an opportunity to say no to something for the glory of Christ and the betterment of someone else. Please, Lord, don't let us be legalists. Let us be gospel-driven men and women, boys and girls, who change because Jesus died for us. Lord, help us in these areas. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.
Amen.